Crystal Deal With It focuses on bridging the gap between where you're at now and where you'd like to be. We'll explore wisdom and techniques from a wide variety of domains and industries and apply them to your unique challenges. I love developing frameworks, processes, and storytelling metaphors that enable personal and business growth. Through actionable next steps, we'll build momentum and confidence. My goal is to help you clear roadblocks, do more with what you have, and realize the potential of yourself and your team. So throw your challenges my way and Chris will deal with it. First, an AI statement that all elements of this episode are products of the author, Chris Kreuter, and his guests, and made without the use of any AI tools. Welcome to episode 31 of Chris will deal with it, writing to heal. Today, I've got the honor of speaking with my father, Eric Kreuter. Together, we do a deep dive into the powerful effects of writing as a therapeutic tool in addiction counseling. Eric Kreuter has more letters after his name than in it, including a PhD in clinical psychology. This workshop episode provides insight into the power of pouring out thoughts and emotions onto the page. We cover the training, frameworks, and support structure that provides successful recovery and personal growth. There's plenty of powerful takeaways for anybody who's interested in the written word as a tool for positive change. I recommend downloading the free PDF of today's show notes. In addition to the summary of our conversation, there's links to additional resources and details on how you can help contribute to the mission of St. Christopher's Inn. You can find the PDF at chriscroyder.com slash WTH. That's C-H-R-I-S-K-R-E-U-T-E-R dot com slash W-T-H. Warning that this episode contains descriptions of trauma, abuse, drug and alcohol use, and addiction. While this episode does not contain any graphic details or profanity, it's not appropriate for children. So just start off by talking a little bit about yourself and the work that you do. Well, I have two lives. During the week, I am a managing director of a public accounting firm, and I do litigation and forensic work. And on the weekends, I am a chemical dependency counselor at a drug and alcohol rehabilitation center for adult men. As part of this workshop, I wanted to talk more about the work that you do using creative writing as a healing mechanism. So the first part of writing to heal is going to be an introduction. So we're going to talk about the, your use of creative writing as an adjunct therapy and the work you do at St. Christopher's Inn. St. Christopher's Inn has been around for about 125 years. It's located in Garrison, New York on 400 acres under the auspices of Oasis, which is a New York State program that covers addiction clinics. St. Christopher's is adult men only. They have a population currently of about 110 men. They stay there from between three months and a year. Some check out, unfortunately, early, and some stay a little bit longer. And they have two aftercare locations, one called Brothers Christopher House in White Plains, and they have a farm called San Damiano Farm on the property where uh, the men can go for an extended period of time. The, the model there is they, they live at the inn, they sleep there, have their meals there. We do group therapy, community meetings. And then one of the special things that I do is I started three years ago, a creative writing program, which is an optional program for the men that they do during their recreation time on the weekends. I want to get a little bit more into your background. What is what brought you to counseling first? And then we'll talk about what brought you to St. Christopher specifically. When I was 40 um, and I was doing my regular accounting work in forensics, 
it was a client that suggested I could further my education in psychology. At that point, I had a master's in psychology because I also uh, handled human resources for the firm at one time. So I liked the idea of going back to school, especially for a PhD, which was a little daunting at first, thinking, how could I do that with a full-time career? But I applied and I was accepted, and it was a distance program housed in San Francisco. So I went there for six years. I had two two-week residencies during the year, and I managed it. I just thrived on it. I think what helped me, too, is at the same time I began the doctoral program, I was also changing my life physically. As I ran my first marathon the same week, I went to my first residential conference. By the time I graduated, I'd done 48 marathons. And I think exercise helped clear my mind, and I became very, very creative. So that inspired me. And then years later, I volunteered at a prison for women, and I used creative writing uh, as a way to help the women heal. And then I had an opportunity 10 years later to bring that to St. Christopher's, and they loved it. So it's now a regular part of the treatment program. As I like to call it, it's an adjunct treatment modality that runs alongside of traditional therapies. So for that modality to work, for you to, for you to be effective in that role, what type of training or skills do you need besides the PhD? Well, I've been writing myself since age five. Pass that on to you and um, your siblings as well. I think my qualifications, I've written uh, 15 books, a lot of articles on all kinds of topics, and uh, done a film. And I think just being a creative individual, um, between my education and my work experience and my ability to communicate creative ideas, the clinical director at St. Christopher's embraced it immediately. And they get tremendous feedback from the men in the program that it works. And I also started about two years ago, I volunteer run my own Zoom group on Wednesday evenings for alumni of St. Christopher's and other rehabs. I now have uh, women and men in my program Wednesday where the work continues. Some of them use it as their home group. They're all recovering addicts and I love it. And we have a musician and we're actually doing a music CD, doing collaborative poetry that's become song lyrics that will become recorded music. There's poetry, there's song lyrics. What other types of creative writing are done in your groups? Journaling, letters, we had two men that on their own decided that they were going to write letters to each other. And they they would chase each other around the place saying, give me your letter. They would give each other letters and they shared them all with me and I published them uh, in a book. And they asked each other questions. And from that process, each one of them was healing further and further because somebody else cared and they were able to get a lot off their from deep down inside them where it's repressed. What creative writing does, it allows somebody to dig into a topic that I'll give them. They think thoughtfully about it. They write it. Just the process of writing, moving a hand across paper, because they don't allow them to use computers up there. And then bringing it into group and sharing it verbally and then getting feedback. There's a tremendous vulnerability along with that. But what happens is by getting it out from the interiority, of a person, they can actually examine what it is they're writing, what it is they're speaking. So what I have seen work and do believe is that there's strength in the sharing of what's going on inside an individual. So some of them share the most uh, painful, horrible memories, trauma, abuse, all kinds of things. 
one person talked about, you know, thinking about killing somebody. You didn't, fortunately, but by being willing to talk about it, it had been repressed for 20 years. I've had people deal with successfully with trauma that's been held on for decades. And now that they get it out on paper, they get to examine it in a new light to find new meaning in an old suffering. The creative writing is a way to do that. And it's very different. The average group, they're sitting in a group with 10 to 20 maybe men for an hour. There's a limit as to how much they can share. In the writing, it's all them. So they get kind of center stage on Saturdays and Sundays if they choose. And some choose not to write, some choose to listen. So the other thing that I find is the writer is effectively a testifier as to what happened in their life. Somebody else could say, you know what, that's meaningful to me. And now I understand myself better because you've explained yourself. And in those sessions, I like what you're saying about the creative side. You have It's helpful for you personally to have a creative background and understand the formats, the methodology used to create creative work itself. But you also have to pair that because the themes that they're writing about and the counseling that they're receiving, you do have to pair that with a professional background. You have to have frameworks from a therapeutic side too. So can you talk just a bit about the training and, and understanding you have to have or vetting that's done to have the frameworks? My, I'm qualified to do the work I'm doing because of a doctorate in clinical psychology. And I also have a KSAC sort of uh, credential alcohol and substance abuse counselor trainee certificate. I mean, by trainee, I have all of the requisite qualifications for a full KSAC. I'm studying for the state exam to be a KSAC. And that qualifies me under the New York State guidelines to be a counselor. Gotcha. So I have all the qualifications I need to, to do it. And I mentioned the creative writing. It gives me a lot of background with my own writing. So what also happens in the creative writing room, there's more therapy that I do in that room than frankly I do in the group room because I've got now a more targeted point of view from an individual. And I'm very careful and very specific about the topics, which I call prompts. Many of them will take a prompt. And even though I prefer that they listen, some of them start writing it immediately. I don't repress that. If their energy demands that they do that, I let them do it. But often they'll come back the next day or the next week, say, I did the prompt. So we always begin. I begin every meeting with a check-in. And then those that have something prepared, they go first. So someone will come in, they'll bring the pad of paper, they'll read, we'll get feedback. And that's when I step in and do a little bit of uh, psychotherapy. I'm interested in the parallel too, because even on my creative writing side, there's always that first draft where you're just getting your thoughts, you're getting your emotions, you're, you're trying to figure out what the character's motivations are on the page. And you very much have to go through a deep editing process. In most cases, for me, it's four or five revisions to the same book. You know, I've, I've written, I've written most books five times. And through that process, you really hone in on your own best thoughts. So how much is editing part of that process for them and, and for you to coach them through that process? It's a great question. And a lot of them are initially reluctant to write because they say, I'm not a good writer. I don't know how to spell. I don't know how to use words. So I'll always encourage them and talk about editing. Editing is that which occurs later. The first part is to get the thoughts out on paper. 
what I tend to do with them is when they come in with their, as you would call it, a first draft, and some of them have a hard time reading their own writing, so they stumble through it. What I'll do is I'll encourage them to then rewrite it. And I was able to do the book because I collected the writing of 60 men over a 14-month period and with their permission published it all. So that's where I came in. I'm In that book, I'm the editor. So what happens in group, though, when they come in with the draft and they read and it needs a little bit of attention, I'll ask them if they want it polished and then I'll help them with it. So that's a little bit more one-on-one. -on -one. So I'll take things home. I'll, I'll just take a red pencil, give them some suggestions. What I don't do is edit out content. Mm. I might part, change, suggest word choices. They do tend to use a lot of profanity. I don't edit all of that out because use of profanity is considered a mark of sincerity in the addict, strangely enough. Okay. Uh, occasionally use words that are inappropriate. So I, also, I also teach them about language, that if there's a better word to use than a four-letter word, you might want to consider using it. So their vocabulary actually increases. And sometimes after they share, I'll go over a couple of sentences and ask them to repeat it. And I'll suggest, did you really mean this? Or did you really mean that? And it works very well. The other thing I find is sometimes their thinking is all over the place. And their writing is just multi-topic. I'll ask usually the room if I find it confusing who understands what they just heard. And I'm fascinated by there could be another addict that resonates 100% with what's been written because they're also in that, I call it multi-ball. They're in yeah. that like pinball machine with 12, 12 balls rolling around, but they can get it. So there, I'm actually learning that just because I might find it a little too confusing doesn't mean everybody does. Yeah, work resonates with different audiences, right? In different ways. But I, I'm interested in, to hear you talk about the parallel between editing of the writing and or, or revising of the of their own writing plus the revising of their thought patterns and their mm -hmm. behaviors. I, I'll give you an example. There's a very, very intelligent woman in my group. She wrote a very emotional poem. She was sexually abused from age five to age 12 by a friend of the family. She's been writing about her pain. She became an alcoholic to numb the pain. She's in recovery. She's coming to terms with not only the alcoholism, she's coming to terms with the abuse. She sent me a poem that when she read it, she was in bitter tears. But when she finished writing it, she looked happy that she shared. So she sent it to me the next day. She said, would you please edit it? What I did there is I reformed her poems that had very long sentences into shorter sentences with spacing to use fewer words. Sometimes in poetry, you can say too much. So then I sent it to her and she was very appreciative. So I didn't change any of the content. I just made it more poetically stylistic easier on the ears to hear, but, but also actually to make it a little bit more intriguing to draw the reader in. When a poem is too wordy, it really begins to look more like an essay. So a poem shouldn't be written in essay form and an essay should be written in poetry form. In fact, I've also coached people who've written essays to take the essay and write a poem from it, to take key phrases. 
So I try a lot of techniques to help the writer improve their writing capability. And then in editing, just to make it more polished, as you would know, going through drafts of your own book. So working with another person, and I've, I've earned their trust that they know I'm going to edit it without destroying content. There's a way to write more, um, I would call it maybe more professionally. And the work is worthy of being produced in the most professional way without making it so antiseptic that, um, you know, that they even don't recognize it. Yeah, you want it to be their words and their thoughts. Yeah, that's important. Can you give some example prompts that you might use? You know, some maybe someone wants to explore. Maybe their listener is going through their own pain and might want to explore that through creative writing. What kind of prompt? Maybe a, a more <clears throat> general one. I'll give one, a couple of them. To imagine you're looking in the mirror. What does the person in the mirror have to say? There is a big difference between the real person and the image. And what I found fascinating without fail is the voice in the mirror is typically the older voice and a mentor. The person in the mirror knows exactly what has to be done. So when I point out to the writer, I said, you need to realize that that is your subconscious that knows exactly what you need to be doing, knows exactly what changes of thought need to occur. And I'll always ask some question, if you look in the mirror, do you make eye contact? Usually 50% of them can't. So that means they're hiding from themselves. That's the therapeutic step in. So I'll point it out to them. So if you can't look at yourself in, in the eyes in the mirror, that's a different problem. So you can't hide from yourself. So that little tiny snippet of therapy makes people realize I've been hiding from the true me all these years. And they can do it using a mode that is not the actual physical act of looking in the mirror, which is really interesting. Yeah. And so another prompt would be a recent one I did was to pick five adjectives, any adjectives they want, and then to use the adjectives and write a story. One person who did it invented a fictitious character, and it was so eloquent and it was so deep that encouraged him to expand it. A lot, of, a lot of what happens is the prompt that results in an essay or a poem could eventually be expanded into a book. So I'm encouraging all of my writers to write their life story. And I have several people that are very, very interested in doing that. I did a prompt where you walk outside and everything is upside down. The trees, the houses, cars, people. And, and the way they write, they get into that action and they talk about it. And it's a metaphor for their life is upside down. But by being able to recognize the world is upside down, in the writing, in that prompt, they find a way to cope with the upside down world. If they can do that, they can apply that creativity to their own life. And if you can understand yourself upside down, we can't live in perpetuity upside down. So they find a way. The other thing that I do from a writing, for example, I'll ask them to write a letter to their addiction. So it would be writing a letter to your alcoholic self. And they do a great job. And then I'll have them write a letter back. So they then become the voice of addiction. Hmm. And the voice of addiction is usually written cruel, hurtful. I'm taking over your life. 
Now, imagine that somebody's done two letters, a letter to their addiction and a letter back. What I do is I go the extra step. I don't leave it there. I then have a dialogue. So there's a technique in Gestalt psychology called the empty chair, where you verbally sit across from an empty chair and you have a confrontation, a dialogue about a quandary in your life. And you keep trading places until there's a resolution. I've worked it out successfully in writing. So one letter is to addiction. The other letter is back from addiction. Then another letter back. And eventually, a deal has to be cut. And what was worked out this past weekend, an individual who's been in rehab now three times. I know him very well. And he actually worked out for himself the most poignant conclusion I've ever heard. He said to the addiction, he said, you will always be there, but I will always be more powerful than you. And I will never forget that you will always be there. So he's making a commitment statement without realizing it, hmm. that he's going to stay in his recovery, active recovery, every day for the rest of his life. He's 30 years old. He has a very good chance and high probability of never using again because he'll remain vigilant every day for the rest of his life. The ones who come in there and think, I've got this, I'm going to dry out and clean myself up, I'll go back to my regular life. Relapse is so prevalent. The death rate is so high. I like to tell them that addiction is in the parking lot doing push-ups while they're in rehab. So the writing creates a reinforcement. And quite often, I'll ask them to take that writing and to read it to themselves every day for the rest of their life as a reminder of where they came from. And, and that is the effective extinguishment of the power of addiction by giving it credit that it exists. It's, think of it like a weakness or an allergy. You can't ever forget that it's out there because there will be a trigger. There will be a time in life that they'll have a pressure or something will happen and they'll go to their standard fallback, which is a drug. And 90% of it, I'm convinced, it's not for the elation, it's for the numbing. They wanna be numbed out. And the problem there is whatever quantity you used before, you got to keep increasing that. you got to go to the next drug. And that's where fentanyl comes in. The fentanyl is the worst because that will kill. They know that. So they graduate from cocaine, alcohol, heroin, whatever it is, to fentanyl. They take that risk because they have very low self-esteem anyway. But they want the higher high. When you keep searching for the higher high, you'd be like a balloon floating up into the sky. Eventually, it's going to burst. And they know that. They know that. I've had men tell me, I know this will kill me one day, but I'm compelled to do it. It's the compulsion. And that's where writing comes in. Because if they can write directly into the heart of compulsion, they can see the inconsistency with living a good life. So I match that up with destiny. What, what is their destiny? What's their purpose in life? What's their relationship with the drug that, Matt, that uh, competes with reaching the destiny? So I'm essentially trying to have them give themselves new meaning by looking at their value of their life. I can't tell them you're valuable. I can only ask them a question to dig in to find the value that they find in themselves. Yeah, it's much more meaningful and, when they can find it for themselves. Yeah. And I'm convinced that part of recovery and addiction, you've got to want to be recovered. You have to say, I'm tired of the impact of this drug. 
I want a new life. I want my life back. That's only a beginning, though. The rest is the reinforcement. So the I'll, I'll usually hold up a pen in the writing group and I'll say, this is your therapist. I do believe that somebody can write away the demons, can write their own therapeutic recipe, as long as they're willing to dig deep, dig it out, put it out on paper, and share it with another human being. You're helping them find their voice. Yes. Can you just talk about how people can get involved in helping St. Christopher's in in the work that you do and the other counselors, the program? St. Christopher's is always looking for new counselors. So if anybody has any qualifications, social work degree, chemical dependency experience, I'm sure they would love to talk to them. They are run by the Franciscan Friars of the Atonement. Donations in the form of American dollars, always appreciated. They also, many of the men show up there uh, homeless. Uh, I've had many people donate clothes. On the weekend, we play softball. If anybody has any really cool, good condition softball gloves, some softballs, a bat, very much appreciated. The published book, it's published in November 2021. It's called Effective Use of Creative Writing in the Treatment of Chemical Addiction, published by Nova Science Publishers in Hopog, New York. All proceeds from the book go to St. Christopher's. It's an academic book. It's 540 pages. It's very expensive, but what's good about it is proceeds go to St. Christopher's. It has the writing, as I mentioned, of over 60 men, and it's a tremendous archive of the beautiful creative work through pain and trauma and triumph of that many people. I'm very proud of the most important thing I ever did in terms of my writing was to bring that to those people. And I'm glad I did it. And, and I've got two published articles since then. And as I said, we're doing a music project. I think that the pub, and I, I teach my writers about the importance of publishing is first for your own therapy and then to give it away to the world. It's not about money, it's about helping. And the by publishing a book, it's creating the potential that somebody might be helped. You just recently had an article in the CPA journal. I loved how you ended it. You know, you're writing this for the accounting profession. We earn our livelihood serving our clients with their tax, audit, and consulting needs, but we also serve them as people. Because our clients collectively serve mankind in every capacity, we can and do apply ourselves towards the global good. In this way, we are reinforcing why we are the trusted profession. Can you maybe speak to that just a real quick? Well, accountants tend to be what I call hardcore capitalists. We make money, the clients make money, we help the clients make more money. But we're human and they're human. So when we step away from the what it is we do and think about who we're doing it for, giving back to the world helps balance the accounting mind to be a human mind, to say, I recognize that there are hurting people in the world. I recognize that there's need. And everybody has a different calling in terms of their charity of choice, as I like to call it. So I'll go back to the word balance. It balances the, the mindset of the business person to think in a different level, think that there are people that I can, I can apply my talent to give my time away to help people. That's awesome. We'll be all, all find balance like that in our lives. I wanted to talk to you a bit about how handwriting and typing, uh, how they compare and contrast. So most of the work that I do with my writing is on the computer. I may start a few notes and things by hand, but you had talked about before how there are no computers at St. Christopher's Inn. 
Uh, so handwriting has to be very vital to the work that you do. Can you talk a bit about that, how you know, you've, you've written in both modes. Is there a difference that you feel between them? I still to this day, I think differently with a pen or a pencil in my hand versus on the keyboard. It's a different brain function to move the muscles across a piece of paper. I think that I have more creativity working something out on paper than I do on the computer. Now, my handwriting is very sloppy, and a lot of the men, I could barely read their writing, but they love it, though. They love the idea, because you can take your pad of paper outside. You don't need to any electronics. You don't need an internet connection. You just need your paper and your pen to scribble your notes across. It can always be polished later. But I think that there is a connection from the brain, through the arm, through the hand, through the pen. And what that really is, is that's a linkage between what's deep down inside in a well of what could be repressed feelings that comes out through that process. It doesn't mean it can't happen also on the keyboard. It just means that there, it is a means that they can all use. It's the universal opportunity to write. And they just to correct, they do have computers. Okay. The reason they don't let them use it is they don't want them doing inappropriate things on the internet. So it's hard for them to separate the two. And because there's so many people and so limited amount of time, they can't really, there's no place for them to save their work to. So it, and they create these limitations in the technology world. They also take their cell phones away. They, they don't want them to be distracted by cell phones. They want them to focus on their recovery. So writing helps them when they have a spare hour and they say to me, I'm bored, I don't know what to do. I'll say, take a pad, of, I'll give them a pad of paper. I'll give them a pen. I say, go for a walk. Go look at trees, go look at a bird, go sit down someplace. And whatever comes to your mind, write about it. I've seen them come back with pages of beautiful, expressive writing to the point where they'll tell me, I didn't realize I could write like that. Hmm. And the other thing I find, when they write on paper, they're also sitting in the world someplace. They're hearing and noticing things that they otherwise would have missed. And that's exactly what happens to the addict. The drug numbs everything, what they hear, what they see, what they perceive. It's all distorted. When they're in a, uh, a sober environment and they go out into the world, all of a sudden, the bird that they didn't realize existed is there. The squirrel climbing up a tree is there. They'll watch a leaf fall from a tree in the fall. And they're brought to life. So by bringing to life what they're visualizing and by matching that with what they could write creatively, all that energy that's inside that's hurting them comes out on the paper. They take it out on the paper and then they're able to re-examine it. So it, essentially they're taking something painful, archiving it on a piece of paper, and then they themselves get to read it and then it's changed. Just by looking at it, by writing it, changes the dynamic of the thing that's felt. Do you find them being a lot more realistic in their writing as opposed to, you know, if, as someone that writes science fiction primarily, you're trying to distort things to point out flaws with the world, but that's, it's an intentional choice. Whereas with the therapeutic writing, are you seeing them really trying to see the world as it is and describe the world as it is? Or oh, yeah. are they trying to put fictional, like giving a voice to the bird or a backstory to the leaf that's falling? It's a good question. It's a combination of both. 
sometimes the personification of an animal is very helpful because their voice comes through the bird. In the reality writing, they're able to really talk about the actual harshness of the pain they feel. They talk about the pain they cause their family, the loss. Some of them have lost children, parents. They'll talk about that loss. One man wrote about asking his father, who just died, for forgiveness because of what he put the father through. And when he read it, he was crying the entire time. But when he finished, he was completely purged of all the pain. So by having somebody go through in a safe environment, all the trauma, all the pain poured out on writing, they no longer feel that pain hurting them inside because it's now on the outside. And when it's shared, it dissipates. And that sharing and the dissipation, I mean, that would that's that could be enough for a lot of people. You've gone a step further in the work at St. Christopher's where you have published them into a book. You have have them edit the work and revise it to a point where they can see it reflected back in a larger setting, you know, in a physical book. Mm -hmm. And you've also taken another step and created, a, I think it was a gala event where they would get up in front of a lot of the donors. I mean, correct me here. They, uh, I've done three. We call it a sober lounge. And was an opportunity. I've done three of them. I'm scheduling a fourth where the writers present their work to the entire community. So it could be 150 people in the room. On average, creative writing, I'll get about 20 in the community to write. By having them come up to the podium to read, and some of them are very afraid of public speaking. So the other benefit, and I rehearsed this in my writing program, not only do they learn how to write, they learn how to present, and they get very comfortable exposing their writing to an entire community. That's a vulnerability. But when they transcend from feeling vulnerable, I can't, to I'm going to push myself and do it, and then they do it, that's a triumph. That has a reverberation positive impact on them. The emotional writers usually present emotionally because they, it's fascinating to me, somebody who's lived the experience who writes with emotion, who reads with emotion, can actually still present emotionally. It stays fresh. And when they do that, the audience is typically jaw-dropped because they realize, wow, I'm watching somebody express their pain. It's very therapeutic to the entire audience because they realize I can have the courage also to talk about my pain. If you can talk about yours, I can talk about mine. So I view it as a form of modeling just unpack that a little bit in terms of modeling. When an individual who, let's say, doesn't come to writing, and I have no criticism for them, it's not for everybody. If they're locked up, they do not express themselves. They're frozen in their emotions. When they sit in a room and they listen to somebody who's purging, it gives them additional encouragement. Maybe it's okay to share which means maybe it's okay to feel and express my feelings. So I view it as teaching emotional intelligence. And without emotional intelligence, or what would be called EQ today, without that, people are not going to be successful in their life because life is not lived cerebrally all the time. Life is meant to be felt. So to have a happy, thriving life and locked up in the feelings, there I believe 
much more prone to triggering to drug use, triggering to depression and anxiety. So what I'm actually treating is not just drugs. Drugs are on the surface. It's a symptom of another problem. And that's usually trauma, depression, anxiety, or abuse. So you said that writing can be a powerful tool for emotional healing. We talked about deepening their human connections, decreasing cognitive distortions. Uh, you talked about being more vulnerable and that increased self-awareness of that locked up inner pain. So can you talk a bit about working with someone who's really gone through extreme trauma and having that writing be an effective tool? I had an individual in the writing group who was very eager to talk about his recurring nightmares that he had for over 20 years. And he, he openly explained that, that he had experienced when he was five in a swimming pool, the death of his three-year-old brother. That traumatized him, as one might expect. So we went for a walk afterwards, and I asked him if he was willing to write a letter to his brother. Now, you see, he's now in his 30s. I asked him to write a letter as a five-year-old to a three-year-old. He said, yes, I'll do that. He came in the next day with the most beautiful letter to his little brother. And then the breakthrough, I asked him to write a letter back. So now it's a week has gone by. He comes back in on a Saturday and reads a poignant letter from his brother. That went on for a series of eight letters. He's reading the eighth letter. He reported that his nightmares ended. He stopped taking sleep medication. In the middle of reading the eighth letter, he turned to me and he said, why would I ever use drugs again? My brother lives inside me. He created an analogy of a marriage where he bonded with his brother. And you can tell in the letters that although the brother died, the brother lived. So he used his faith, brought his faith into the equation gained strength from it, and he then became the physical carrier of himself and his brother. So it ended. But the other thing that occurred is he realized not only was he a brilliant writer, but he began reading. And he especially read work by Rumi. And he then became uh, almost annoying. He would come in with a daily Rumi quote. And he realized, and he realized, he had an excellent memory. So he was digesting volumes of philosophical work. His writing over a few month period of time was so voluminous that he's now in the process of putting it together as a book. He is healed of the pain of the trauma because the, the evidence is the nightmares ended. He's been one year in sobriety. He's working. He is level in terms of his temperament. And although he can talk about what he's been through, he's not reliving it over and over and over again. So he has a chance to have to live a very effective life. And as we talked about it, the trauma of the experience, the death of a three-year-old brother will never go away. It'll never be exempt from his life, but it doesn't need to be. It just needs to be 
brought into the context of his life going forward. And the beautiful thing is he created the concept of bringing the brother into his life, the marriage. I like that because he came up with it. I offered it to him. It would be eventually rejected because it's me, not him. So by having him find the power in the way that he found effective, it balanced his life to the point that his uh, nightmares became good dreams. In fact, he talked about it. He, the last dream he had that he told me about, the brother was at a party in a rocking chair. He was watching him back and forth. And, hmm. um, you know, he almost like became the quasi-parent. And um, the thing that I always notice when they do that is their affect, the way they look. So he'd be smiling, he'd be happy, he'd be cheerful. And the words became more happy and cheerful and vibrant. So I look at that as this is trauma work where the drug was the symptom of the real problem. So even though he came to a drug program, by dealing with the underlying mental illness, it saved him from having the trauma result in medication for life and the drug use to mask it all, which would eventually kill him. It's a really powerful story, and I think it speaks a lot to the fact that therapy is not a quick process, and neither is writing. I'd love to hear you riff on this a bit, the fact that both processes needing to be, by hand or by otherwise, just they're long, drawn-out processes. You have to edit, you know, just like you have to edit your own thought processes along with your words. You're talking about writing these letters, and, and there's a week between them, right? And you're not doing this just in a vacuum, right? There's other support therapies that are being done at St. Christopher's in and other programs in between this work. Can you talk yes. a bit about how that long process goes? You, know, you, you have a lot of patients to work with them. So how does that come through in both the writing and the, the general therapy they're receiving? It's a good question. Uh, what I encourage them to do, um, on the weekend, it's a different mix of people in group. During the week, they have what they call their track. They have people that they're assigned to one therapist. Because all the therapists know about the creative writing work, I ask them often to bring their work into their small group. And the therapists like that, and they're doing well with it. The other thing in terms of the, the interval, I use the interval very effectively to give guidance in terms of, uh, of work during the week. I never call it homework. I never call it a requirement. And I'll always correct the man when he says, you told me to write this. I said, no, I suggested it. It's not for me to tell somebody how to use their time. But I want to bring up a uh, what I'm currently working on thematically for the past four months in both my Wednesday group and in my weekend group, and that's the dark to light theme. Darkness is typical in the mind of the addict because their lives have darkened. So I'll do a lot of encouragement to write into the darkness, to use dark metaphors to find the light. And there's a 28-year-old woman who's been um, an addict for since she was 18. She's been 10 years, 10 years. And she has been working out successfully the dark light conversion. And what she did using that gestalt empty chair, she did it in letters. She had a dialogue with the dark personality and the light personality and she created a third persona, which is the, the monitor. So she had dark talk to light and light talk to dark in a way that light eventually said, I'm taking over. I know, it's all the other, the other story. You will always exist. You, I will always have dark 
in my mind, but I'm not going to let it control my life. So by having people write openly darkness, it could be the most bleak, awful thing. But when they write it, they're writing it out literally into the light. So imagine the dark thought inside where there's no light. They're putting it on a paper where the sun is shining or there's a light bulb. Even hmm. subconsciously, they're bringing their, work, their life out into the light. And then by sharing it, it goes out into the room, which is more light. And then when they get positive feedback from the people that now understand what they've been through, they give up the notion of being shackled by the darkness. And now they're unshackled because they can freely express, I'm not feeling well because I experienced something terrible in my life. But I also realize I don't have to live that over and over again. So it goes back kind of to trauma. And I think trauma plays into all of this. Depression yeah. is born in some repressed anger, some rage that they feel over something that happened. Even the woman that was sexually abused since five, she told me the other day, she goes, uh, I have no ill feelings towards that person whom I never want to see again. But she let go because the power of hating somebody. I always talk about they're living rent-free in your brain. But by getting rid of that, by purging the hate and accepting the fact, yes, that occurred. This person did hurt me. Or I hurt somebody and I need to forgive. So I talk a lot about letting go. One of the pillars of recovery is letting go. Without forgiveness, none of that's possible. So when we forgive the abuser for hurting us, we gain. When we forgive ourselves for hurting a person, we move forward. So then we have this real cool thing in recovery called the step of amends. So if you've hurt somebody, you say to them, I know I hurt you. I'm sorry I did that. I'm changing my life to never hurt again. You've made amends, whether they accept it or not is their problem. It allows somebody to move forward in their life as productively as possible. And I'll go back to the term, not to overuse it, but I think unshackling really works here. The other metaphor that I like to give is uh, sculpture. If you take a block of marble, and I'll ask them about a, uh, a bust of a human being in marble, did the sculptor create it? And it's a trap question. Many of them say yes, I'll say no. The sculptor did not create the object. The sculptor chipped away the rough spots. So if you think of Michelangelo chipping away in a block of marble to create a statue of David, I'll give them the power that you are the block, you are the statue, you're the hammer, and you're the chisel. You chip away your own rough spots. So when we talk about transformation of ourselves, what we're really talking about is improving in the form of reduction of the things that we need to have changed, the rough spots, the flaws. We're never going to eliminate all of them. And if you eliminate 10, a new one will develop. That's life. But by realizing that you have the power to self-recognize that which needs to change, and you have the hammer and the chisel, you're in charge of the actual chiseling process. Most people are oppositional. They don't want somebody to change them. So if you hand them the power of the knowledge that they have the power to change themselves, they often do. I love that analogy. You know, it's in, inside of our mind, our thoughts, you know, they, they, they can bounce around, be jumbled, but it's dark in there. They're lost. They don't know how to get out and bring it into the light, actual through a physical action. You're also a painter. 
And have you explored other types of creative forms? Maybe somebody not comfortable writing it in words, but can get the expressions out through painting, drawing. Have you explored other mediums of art therapy in your work? Oh, yes. In fact, uh, early on in the writing um, process of St. Christopher's, a man came in with art pad and was drawing a rose. <clears throat> Initially, I thought, you're not paying attention, but I didn't say anything to him. As an artist, I was fascinated and didn't interrupt him. And then it occurred to me, I then became creative in the middle of doing a program on a completely different topic. When he was finished, I held up his drawing to the room. And I said, let's do a collaborative poem on this. By the time we were done, we had a lengthy poem that I titled Pain and Love. Every single component of that flower, from the thorns to the stem to the rose, color, texture, feelings, it was personified. I published it along with a, a picture of the rose. And then coincidentally, a year later, an individual gave me a St. Christopher's business envelope and he drew a rose on it, a color picture. It looked like a painting from Rembrandt. I still hmm. have it. He gave it to me as a gift and it's got the St. Christopher's return address on it. <laughs> and, huh. and so, wow, this is like, he took a piece of stationery and made it into art. And it is one of my favorite relics completely, but the artist is typically discovered in a place like that, as is the musician, because we work with music as well. By nurturing the talent, the creative talent, it blends. By combining art and poetry, it blends. And I proved this. I had an opportunity to run a creative writing program at another rehabilitation center in Middletown, New York, Resource Recovery. And that's co-ed. When I went up there, I had the book published. And I just happened to pick that poem with that rose. I asked a, a woman to come down and read it. She had never seen it before in her life. She was in the middle of reading the poem and she started crying. And she looked up and she said, I'm so touched by these words. She finished it. And I said to her, I will never forget for the rest of my life, you reading this poem. And I do believe that to be true. She touched the room. She added life to words on paper. And I held up, obviously, the book so people could see the picture. But she then became poetry. So I, I used that to create that energy in the room that an individual who reads something that she had no part in creating, but she had every part in bringing it to life, she benefited by her talent. And so did the whole room. And that's what I think it's all about. And that's where the performance of reading your work. So one of my dreams, you mentioned the benefactors, one of my dreams is to have a community event with a thousand people, they can hold that many and have all the benefactors, all the alumni and have 20, 30 presenters, music, art, writing, a showcase. And being a determined person, uh, I will make sure that happens at some point <laughs> in my lifetime. There's interest. But there's a lot of logistics, obviously, to make something like that happen. It could take me a year. It could take me five years. But the good thing about this work is it's scalable. So, you know, the book is out there. I presented this work to four other rehabs, and I'm going to continue to do that. And I don't charge because I believe that this is the um, 
faith-based work for me to give, I feel calling to give of myself to this work, to be part of the process of helping. And that's important. The thing that I remind myself every time I'm up there is to not judge the addict because they're an addict. And I don't refer to them in my own mind as an addict. It's a human being. Mm-hmm. And I and that um, is redoubled on softball field. I, I play with them. I'm part of them. So although, and, I, and if they ask me, I don't have an addict background. I've never used drugs, never alcohol. Well, I guess that, but I gave that up. But the, um, you know, uh, by, by not being one of them, I'm one of them as a human being. And they've come to trust me about that. A lot of therapists in the drug and alcohol rehab are themselves recovering. The fact that I'm not is not held against me, but I believe frees me up because now I can, and I can bring my business skills into it by teaching strategic life management. And uh, I need to do financial literacy as an occasional topic. So I'm myself a blend, and it makes me look at every individual up there as they're a blend also, but they don't realize it. So they have hidden talents. They have capabilities. And the ones that I think have could have a calling to actually do the work to be a clinician, I'll encourage that. I've encouraged three people to go into ministry, a number of people to go into training to become a therapist, to give them an encouragement to pick a direction not to be uh, directionless in their life. Because if we help them recover, what's the point if they have no direction in their life? Have you, on a personal level, used creative writing to help you find a direction or deal with trauma, pain, or otherwise in your own life? It it has absolutely helped me. Uh, I, I resonate with the topic because of my own writing. My first poetry book was exactly on point. It was 20 years of feeling. Not all the poems are happy. They're about relationships, which by definition are not always happy. So having lived through writing into pain, I have personal experience to bring to the table on how useful it is. By, by letting them see both two things, the willingness to write personally and then the collaboration. By bringing collaborative work there, I get them to realize Life is not a singular focus. Sometimes it requires two or more than two to create something larger than life. Alternative points of view in the work. The hardest book I ever did was with an attorney who wanted to take over the project. And I tested him and I said, you know, I don't want to do this book with you anymore. He said, why not? I said, because you're taking over. You're a dictator. You want to change every word I write. So why don't you write the book? And he calmed down and he called me up the next day and he said, I get the point. We wrote a beautiful book together called Life Transitions. It was very stressful, actually. But I was glad I did it. It was a triumph of being able to do something with a, uh, a type A attorney. They're, by definition, brilliant. But they're, frankly, very difficult to work with. So what I did is I worked on the relationship by threatening it. And it worked. You know, I always use the expression that writing is my best thought. But in a, in a lot of ways, you're helping redefine that for me. Writing for other people cannot just be their best thought, but it can also be their deepest emotions. It can be and their best there, therapist. It can be their best friend. And, and, and go on, continue on that. That's energy, right? The, the thought, like your creative thoughts on your books is energy in your creative mind put out through paper in a project, ultimately a book. And refined by myself. Like it's not just the first thought. It's not just the default setting of my thoughts. It's, 
internally analyzed it's gone over time and time again it's finding the right way to express it for a particular audience i mean i write mostly for middle grade kids so i can't you talked about being very careful about your language choices and you talked before about editing down right not having the long sentences to make it easier to read easier to digest easier to find the emotion the truth within the words so you're helping redefine that for me a bit through our conversation and it brings out i believe in the times the time continuum with that part of your life the best of you and i can tell you the other cross benefit as a testifying expert witness in court i actually applied my writing capability in my spoken capability to a jury how so i was very effective by answering the questions i was able to focus on the question but express it in a way that made me appear extremely sincere so by working with the in addiction driving towards sincerity i actually became myself more capable of doing that by speaking truth but doing it in a way that um and i think e even when i testify i think i can't get rid of the poet some of my word choice is poetic like i don't remember the word i used but there was a word that the attorney didn't understand and i almost had a laugh and and i i explained it to him <laughs> and if i were going to be a little embarrassed they usually yeah. more more linguistic than anybody but in this case he wasn't so i've become much more expansive but i also realized that just because we can use big words doesn't mean we should yeah you have to sprinkle them in when you need to right and by the way and the, other thing, the other thing that i noticed is we also can't treat the audience as stupid yeah. so sometimes the eloquence of writing like shakespeare might shakespeare is difficult to understand for some people but it's still beautiful even if you don't understand the words it still can read beautifully so i've learned to find a balance between what it is i'm explaining is it digestible and understandable at the same time there's nothing wrong with poetic expression yeah and you have to meet the definition of the medium in which you're creating is also really important right i talked before about when i'm writing to kids in that 8 to 13 age range you have to simplify the themes or you have to you don't want to insult them but you also can't use words like eloquent <laughs> you can't use very complicated or aggressive language you have to be really careful in how you say things and uh, it talked a lot today about you know the differences between poetry and letter writing which is more back and forth by definition of, of writing a letter. You're expecting one back in most cases. Song lyrics or screenplay, short stories versus novels. Get into a deeper thought or a deeper plot. Do anything you want to add to that? I, I, I do. Um, there's two things that I encourage people to do. It's called page a day. That if you write one page of your life story a day, in a year, you've got 365 pages. That's a book. So I encourage the writers to write short-term poetry and long-term epic life stories. So the person that says, I can't write a book. Well, of course you can. but you can. And I use the analogy of how do you eat an elephant? It's one bite at a time. So by having them take the power of that, and I'll always walk in with a whole bunch of white pens, and I'll hand them out like candy, and as many pens as they want. And I encourage them to spill, to bleed, let the pen bleed all over the paper. So eventually. And then the other thing is I'll ask the person who's poetry resistant to write one line today, one line tomorrow, 
one line the next day. And in two weeks, they've got 14 different mindsets in one poem. And it's actually the subtlety here is it's a conversation with the self. That self-dialogue, I go back to the mirror, is probably the most important tool for somebody that's lost inside themselves. You've got to redefine. One person who did the mirror example had the mirror crack hmm. and was also an artist. And drew, I put this in the book too. Uh, a piece of the glass has blood on it. He used it to talk about how shattered his life was. But when he finished it, though, all the glass was repaired. The blood ended. He was intact. He then became comfortable in his own skin. Therefore, he's able to be who he is with his own history. We cannot, we cannot escape our histories, but we don't have to repeat it. So the power in recognizing, yes, this is what I've been through. Yeah, I was really wrong here. I hurt people there. People hurt me. That's true. But I still have my future. And one of the powerful things I'll tell them in group is that we've all survived 100% of the challenges we faced in life, but we don't need to keep creating rocks in front of us to stumble over. So the writing becomes powerful to get out of our own way, to find the strength that's been hidden. I'll often talk about the cave metaphor. We go into, uh, into, into a cave and you find a stream at the bottom, 150 feet below the earth, like Howe's Cavern, anybody's been there. And you take a cup of water and you drink the water and that's your strength that you lost. And I'll have them describe the trip of going down under the ground, the, the coolness of it and drinking the water and the coolness of the water, but to make that a cup of strength. So by the time they come out from the cave, they're by definition a changed person because they will realize by them to talk about what their individual strength was, that's a subconscious regrabbing of something that was lost. So a lot of it, it may seem like I'm playing head games with them, but I'm really not. What I'm really doing is I'm giving them a way of regrouping lost power. So if you take any lost person, take a homeless person that looks crazy on the street, if you unwind all that, it's not drugs, it's not homelessness, it's how life disappointed them. But by having them talk about what that's like makes them realize just because that's what it was and that's what it might be doesn't mean that's not what it has to always be. So the three points in time, who I was, who I am, and who I want to be is very powerful. We're all three people, right? Our past selves, our current selves, and our future selves. But yep. you're actually physically, you know, the, 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 all modes of creative writing, or sorry, all modes of creativity all start with, you're giving them a physical blank page, mm -hmm. a blank slate, a fresh start, a starting point from which to explore a theme, a pain, a trauma, whatever it might be. And so I think that that is why, you know, writing, and we've talked a lot about it today, obviously, but writing can just be such a great place to explore that from because it's got that physical, right? They're staring right in the face. It's emptiness. It's a clear and open. They can fill it and define it however they like. And, and by the way, that's important because that's purposefulness. By purposefully writing, I very often give a new person, I'll put a line down the middle of a blank page. And I'll say the left side, write your problems and the right side, write solutions. And the last person who did it, they did it wonderfully. I said, all right, now write an essay on every solution. How are you going to do it? 
I'm finding that I need to say a lot less and they need to say a lot more. So I try to avoid speech making in my creative writing group. Sometimes I fail miserably because I get onto a rant, but I do have a high success rate in captivating the attention of the person who really actually wants to heal. They just don't know how. Mm. And I've gotten past the point that we can't just tell them drugs are bad and making your mommy sad. That doesn't work. The meth addict knows that. They could teach me 10, 10 million things about drugs. We don't need to talk about drugs. We need to talk about the relationship with drugs. And that's fresh and that's new. So I'm looking for an angle that hasn't been tried before. So I've only had one or two people that even knew what creative writing meant as a collective term. So some of them are intrigued. They check it out. My best commercial people are the people that talk in the community about being thankful for the opportunity. Then I'll get 10 more people that I didn't know. I'd like to end, you know, a lot of the listeners of the podcast aren't necessarily candidates for deep therapy like you get at St. Christopher's Inn or addiction therapy, but might want to explore creative writing, just exploring their own emotions, maybe even positive ones. Could you leave the audience with some type of maybe a different prompt that you haven't given before or some type of thing that they can do to explore this for themselves? I'll do two things with that. Problem resolution and perspective. Problem resolution, I will go back to anybody in who's listening who wants to solve a problem that doesn't know how to split the page in half down the middle. And the left side, write every element of the problem, break it down into components like splitting a pizza into eight slices. And on the right, to write a tentative solution to each. And then from the solution, take a new clean sheet of paper and to write their own essay as a cookbook and how they're going to achieve it. The other would be a very sincere exploration of who a person is. Going back to that three points in time, who I was, who I am, and who I want to be. It's a way of letting the dream live, letting the past be the past, living in the present, not living in the future. But when you write about three components liberally, you can see that I can write about my past, but I'm not reliving it. I can be in the present and appreciate the value of today. And I can think about tomorrow. So my attitudes and my actions today will set the stage of what tomorrow is going to be like. But I can only control what I do today. You know, so a simple example would be an overspender who looks at my spending habits could say, well, wait a minute, maybe I don't need to buy that $80,000 car. Maybe I could buy a $25,000 car and not cut myself deep in debt so that tomorrow I'm not using my money to pay off a lease or, or a loan on the car that I don't need. I call that perspective by giving yourself a chance to live a more effective life by recognizing life's persistent problems and more importantly, how we get in our own way. We create largely our own problems. Is there anything you wanted to add? I would encourage everybody, virtually everybody, to write their thoughts and feelings down, whether they share them or not, and then to think about something important that they've learned in life that they would like to share and think about over a period of one or two years doing their own epic project, and I'll, I'll call it a book, which I believe everybody can do one. For those that 
say, oh, I can't do a book. Well, maybe you can. The question is, do you want to? There is a certain catharsis that comes with working on something for, for a long period of time and looking at it and having gone through the process, just hit delete and start from scratch again. Yeah, I've I had to that. do that a few I times and it's, it's hard. The, uh, I remember I got a box of my own books. I left the box unopened for three days. I stared at that box for three days because it was so anticlimactic that it was finished. And then what I did in three days was two things. I opened it. That's cool. That's my book. So that's ego. And then I settled myself down and I said, what am I going to do next? I took out my favorite thing in the world, which is a blank piece of paper and a pen. And I jotted down the idea for the next. So to me, just like running, the finish line is only important because the next starting line is just up ahead. So to me, life is lived more richly through our productivity. Thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity. I enjoyed it very much. If you feel that Chris dealt with it, I'd appreciate your support of the show by sharing it with someone who might benefit. Ratings on your favorite podcast player are also helpful in growing the audience. Visit chriscroyder.com for free downloadable PDFs with notes and resources from today's episode, sign up for the CDWI mailing list, or to send in your problems or requests for future shows. That's C-H-R-I-S-K-R-E-U-T-E-R.com, or use the link in the show notes. Thanks for listening to Chris Will Deal With It.